Welcome back to The CIO Show. I'm David Binning, Associate Editor with CIO. I'll be your host for this, the second instalment of our two-part series on artificial intelligence in Australia. Previously, we had some fascinating and hopefully instructive conversations focused on Australia's apparent laggard status when it comes to AI and what should be done about it. Of course, we learn what some of our biggest mining, legal and financial services companies are doing with the technology at the moment to improve efficiencies, customer insights and ultimately the bottom line. In this episode, you'll get still more practical advice on how best to deploy AI, while we also get a little more theoretical and philosophical, if you will, as we contemplate first up how evolution might help us develop a more practical understanding of AI's potential and its current limitations. This provides a nice backdrop for what is certainly a more ethics-oriented discussion this time around, looking at the implications, for instance, of Facebook chatbots developing their own language, how AI should be considered in healthcare, and how best to consider Data61's AI ethics principles. We also talked to the creator of Nadia, the former avatar star of the National Disability Insurance Scheme, about the challenges of deploying highly experimental AI projects at scale. Now, last year, Gartner reported that throughout 2021, 75% of AI projects will remain at the prototype level, as AI experts and organisational functions cannot engage in a productive dialogue. Joining us now is Whit Andrews, Gartner VP and Distinguished Analyst and one of the foremost authorities on AI. Whit, welcome to the CIO Show. Thank you. It's, it's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Look, there's clearly a perception problem with AI, right? Talk to us about that. People think uh, that it's very challenging to begin their AI projects, and especially once they, uh, once they have a proof of concept in place, they're finding it difficult to transition to operationalizing AI. Mm. Um, but they assume that everybody else is doing that beautifully. So yes, the, one of the big perception problems is that everybody thinks everybody else is doing AI beautifully, but in fact, everybody's having trouble with that first threshold of moving from proof of concept to production. Mm. Now you've in the past sort of drawn some parallels between these sort of challenges in the AI space and, and some of the fundamentals of evolution. We discussed recently whether you might be noted as the David Attenborough of AI. <laughs> I thought that was very kind, and uh, I certainly <laughs> hope uh, to become a nonagenarian, um, you know, a promoter of alternative ways of, uh, of thinking uh, as, as driven by and helmed by machines. Mm-hmm. So that's very kind. I'm, I'm delighted by that opportunity. What I would say that I think it's important for people to do when looking at artificial intelligence is not to imagine it as a way of recapitulating the evolutionary path that leads to humanity. Mm. That's just, you know, it's, it's chauvinistic um, and it's self-centered and uh, it's also pretty unlikely that it's going to work. The, the idea is not that AI should do what humans do uh, in the way that humans do it. Mm. Um, Instead, it makes much more sense to look at artificial intelligence um, as demonstrating new ways of reaching conclusions and solving problems mm. um, in particularly narrow fashions that uh, just aren't available to humans because uh, we lack uh, maybe the persistence that artificial intelligence or anything digital mm. can demonstrate, or maybe we lack the, um, the, the non-conscious insight that you can achieve if you simply uh, address a problem over and over again um, with different approaches. So you don't have to use the kind of organic initiative Mm. that humans are amazing at. Instead, you can use the kind of 
inorganic digital initiative that machines uh, excel at. Sure. So um, do you think there's a degree of overthinking with regard to AI? I mean, of course, it is tempting an area to overthink because it does seem to be all about hyperthinking, for want of a better expression possibly. Do you think it's sort of being over, overthought? It's a terrific way of saying it. So let's let's call it hyperthinking. Mm, um, mm. You know, if you if you imagine something like hyperthinking and you're human, you tend to imagine that something thinks like a human but better. Yes. Um, and that's you know that's very natural because humans see themselves uh, as being at the center of the universe, yeah. at the pinnacle of evolution. Mm. Um, but I'm I'm sitting right here in my backyard talking to you right now after uh, seeing. Um, solitary bees work in the flowers and optimizing their path through the flowers quite effectively. Yes. Uh, those solitary bees are actually called leaf cutter bees. Um, and they're working right alongside some carter bees. Mm. Um, and they're all optimizing the collection of nectar from the flowers. Um, they're doing that in an extraordinary way. So they're able to, uh, to figure out when to visit any given blossom, yeah. um, how much nectar to collect, and how to do it. All those things seem amazing to us. We're like, wow, they're so smart. Yes. And from their perspective, they might look at us and, and wonder, we would build a microchip. You know, how does that really help develop a nectar gathering functionality? Sure. So what, what I would say is, I think it's important to recognize that when we develop a self-improving uh, technology, which improves itself, through human intercession and human interaction, what we're essentially doing is refining exceptional tools. Um, and I find it very helpful to use the analogy of imagining them as, um, as digital tools in the way that uh, the companion animals we employ, such as bees, which create honey for us, or dogs, which herd sheep for us. Now you're, you're, you're um, David, your inner David Attenborough is really coming through here. <laughs> Well, there you go, right? I mean, you know, because if you look at the world, what humans are good at mm. is employing external uh, external tools in order to accomplish the things that humans are bad at. Yes. And so that, you know, the, the first round of those external tools was probably biological, mm. uh, something like the human uh, partnership with animals that led to an understanding or an imagining of the presence of an asset that human wanted access to. Just sure. the kind of human partnerships you see with a, a human who works, for example, uh, with the honey-consuming uh, birds of Africa. Yeah, right. Um, or Australia. Forgive me, I don't, I don't re recollect if it's in either or both places. <laughs> but so as a result, you know, that, that's the humans using a, a biological tool. Yeah. Then, um, and maybe before, maybe after that, the humans are also working on mechanical tools. Sure. And now, of course, we work on digital tools. Mm. And we're instigating and driving our own evolution through the employment of these tools. That's mm. It's not a surprise. What's happened in this generation of artificial intelligence is that we are stepping farther and further back from the evolutionary process that's making these. Yeah, it's very interesting. Well, I mean, on I mean, it sort of segues nicely into our next um, area of discussion, which is the skills issue. I mean, much much has made certainly in Australia a lot has made of the fact that we we have a, a skill shortage around IT generally, but. Uh, AI has been highlighted as an area where we have a, a perhaps a more dire skill shortage. What's your sort of view about how organisations should approach this, in inverted commas, skills problem? Is it a problem? 
We've collected, uh, we collected data recently from 600 uh, people who were knowledgeable about and responsible for artificial intelligence in their organization. Mm. And one of the things that we did was evaluate uh, the maturity of the organization in artificial intelligence based on how those people answered some key questions that we derived from our artificial intelligence enterprise maturity model. Sure. So in other words, um, after the respondents had answered a bunch of questions, we knew um, after the fact uh, what level of maturity they've achieved. Well, if you look and, and, and cross-reference that or, or cross-tabulate that rather against um, how they feel about the ability to gain access to artificial intelligence skills, what you see is that the organizations who are the least mature are the least confident in their ability to obtain skills. Right. Now, the reason that I talk about that is it's not that as organizations become more mature in AI that they actually have those skills on the roster. It's that those organizations become more confident in their ability to gain access to the skills when they need them. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I respect the fact that in Australia, uh, organizational leaders may feel that they uh, face a particular drought in artificial intelligence skills. And, um, and, and I, I understand that, they, that, it, that, it, that it would feel that way. What I can tell you is that organizations worldwide who have employed artificial intelligence and have advanced their uh, their use cases, mm. have advanced their data preparation, mm. um, have become more familiar with it and executed more projects, those organizations find that their concerns about skills are misplaced, that they can get the skills when they need them yep. um, from external service providers, uh, through a, a mechanism of hiring, and especially through internal development and training. Right. I mean, I suppose also further to your point, you know, a discussion about evolution, I mean, to a certain degree, organisations that do sort of take the plunge, as it were, with AI are going to develop better um, AI skills organically anyway, right? That makes perfect sense. I mean, you know, you can, and again, you can easily imagine it in any historical moment. Mm. Um, you know, the, the, there were, there have always been moments in time where any advanced technology um, would have caused people to say, well, I, I can't find any people who can do this. And it would have been any number of different things. It might have been uh, being a mechanic on an automobile. It might have been being a chemist who was able to uh, refine metals. Yeah. Um, before that, it might have been somebody who was effectively able to use um, a dog in order to, to hurt the sheep that they have. Yeah. What you'll find always is that it's the person who uh, is capable of developing those skills. Yes. And especially if you have a domain expert, you're better off with somebody who's a good shepherd uh, in terms of learning how to, to train a dog to, to herd sheep than you are in terms of, of going and trying to find people who love dogs. That's sure. just the way it is. Yeah. Look, something, something that I read about recently, which I thought was absolutely fascinating and sort of potentially terrifying at the same time is that Facebook recently revealed its chatbots had developed their own language, incomprehensible to humans. Uh, now, a lot of people jumped on that as evidence that, you know, machines are becoming sentient and, you know, all of the predictable sort of sci-fi horror scenarios kind of came out of that. But I'm just wondering what your, what your um, reaction was when you learned that this had been happening with um, Facebook chatbots. I, you know, I, the, the thing that I feel is that, um, 
So I've, I've, I've read uh, much research. I, I've read much research about that kind of circumstance. It is never a surprise when uh, conversationalists, when, when, when anyone in a conversation develop an effective and useful shorthand that may be incomprehensible to people who are usually outside the conversation on, on the Facebook. So here's, I've just been reading um, a book the bird way, which is about a variety of different aspects of um, of avian intelligence mm. um, and avian the practices birds go through in order to be successful. Mm. Here's what you 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 see when you see any conversationalists who are unfamiliar to you. You see the use of um, of both a practical yes. and productive. Uh, uh, kinds of communications that really, uh, at least initially, are hard for the people outside the conversation to understand. Mm -hmm. And then you see the creation of abstraction. And in fact, um, there are birds, which if I recollect, are either in Australia or in South America, mm -hmm. who have actually developed the use of, of, of phoneme-like elements. So in other words, whistles or clicks or, or, or notes or tones. Yeah that actually are recombined in ways that, that turn them from nonsense apparently into something which is more syntactically valid. Right. Now, here's the thing. If you give two, uh, two uh, you know, halves of a dialogue, two yeah. parts of a dialogue, if you give them meaningful um, or, or aligned elements mm -hmm. and tell them to use them to communicate. It is not a surprise if they if if the resulting interaction results in the creation of a new layer of abstraction. It doesn't mean that you're necessarily dealing with intelligence. Yeah. It can mean that you're dealing with something. Systemic interactions which take place at a vast scale mm -hmm. are likely to create abstractions which feel to the to the things or the people that are outside that interaction, the interaction is still between um, elements of or or tools that were created by humans. Mm. Um, if we take a dog and a cat and we recognize that they communicate with each other, they wouldn't be doing that if it weren't for humans. The yes. cat came from north from north uh, east Africa. Yeah. The dog came from heaven only knows where. It's been so long, we've got no idea. Yeah. If it weren't for humans, they wouldn't be in the same living room, yeah. and they wouldn't be communicating, but they are. Yeah. So it's not a surprise yeah. that we can see digital entities that um, during the process of trading uh, signifiers yeah. develops something that appears to be um, a, uh, a new language. I would, I would quarrel with the question of whether or not it was a language, but I would say that it would be an argument worth having yeah. because essentially, you know, it's, it's an, I would argue that two things cannot have a language if they lack sufficient cognition um, to be vital elements of an ecosystem. Yes. But on the other hand, you know, I'm, I'm sure that there are philosophers who could smack me down and easily uh, bind me around my own <laughs> foolish statement. Yeah, well, it, it certainly seems like something that we don't necessarily need to be overly anxious about. But it is interesting 
and um, and something that um, that ethicists and, as you say, philosophers will be keeping a close eye on. Finally, I wanted to to mention something that's um, occurred following the, the death of George Floyd. Um, IBM, Microsoft, and Amazon announced that they were denying U.S. police departments access to their facial recognition technology. Now, the the issue of Facebook bots developing their own language. That's kind of a grey area, an interesting debatable area around ethics. In this example with George Floyd and this facial recognition technology, I mean, do you think this is an example of where, um, you know, where companies are sort of getting it right around ethics? Is this a sort of appropriate kind of ethical response in your view? Look, I think this is just as debatable. Yeah. Um, here's, here's, here's the thing. Um, uh, people feel differently about their faces than they do about other aspects of the identity that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's normal. I think it's human and I think it's understandable. But I also think it's problematic if we only concern ourselves with the things that we have emotional connections to. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's say that, uh, that the machine can recognize me uh, not only through my face, but also by the back of my head. Mm-hmm. Do I do I still feel that the face is the only thing that we should be paying attention to? Oh, that's a good point. Uh, let's yeah. say that the the device can recognize me by my voice because mm-hmm. you know it can, right? Yeah. I mean, it, we've got all kinds of voice activated stuff. Mm-hmm. So if it can recognize me by my voice, well, do I feel less concerned about that than I do about my face? And if so, why? What's what? You know, I can actually obscure my face in ways I cannot obscure my voice. Mm. Um, let's say that it can recognize me by the way that I use the keys on a keyboard, yeah. and I can tell you that I type with two fingers, and I have a fairly distinctive cadence. I guarantee you. <laughs> Artificial intelligence can tell whether it's me or not based on the way that I typed the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog. Yeah. So, okay, now, well, because what is it that we're really concerned about? Yeah. And the answer is, I think that it is easy for us to feel revulsion yeah. about a, a technology that we perceive is taking on a kind of um, homunculus type activity or behavior that's a fantastic right? so word yes it, it's it's easy for us to get excited about the fact that the machine should not be allowed to understand who we are by looking at us because that makes us feel disgusted yeah but what if a machine can tell who i am by the way that i use words and i assure you people can tell whether or not it's me yeah. based on the way that you know i mean there, there, there was somebody I, I wrote an anonymous humor column in college yeah. and i walked down a hallway one day and a friend of mine named jim said hey you're the anonymous humor columnist and i said how do you know that and he said he said this sentence right here and he said the only person i that at duke university who would have written that sentence is you <laughs> and so now, is that revolting? I, you know, I, frankly, I found it quite a bit flattering. I was like, well, oh, you figured me out, big fella, because I'd written a sentence. And, and I'll tell you what the sentence was, because you'd, you'd, you'd probably like it. Yeah. Uh, rabbits are a terrific way to study evolution because they die a lot. <laughs> and well, that does sound very so, Wood Andrews. Doesn't it? <laughs> right? And so he did. 
He recognized me. And, and it, I, I can guarantee you that the way I write a sentence is far more distinctive than my face. Yeah. The public, insofar as there is such a thing, mm. is highly concerned about facial recognition. And technology giants recognize, rightly, that they have gotten across the public on an issue which the public finds to be emotionally sensitive in the extreme. Sure. Right. I think that makes sense, mm, mm. and that's appropriate. I understand that, and I think it is it is it is good business to pay attention to how your public feels mm. about an aspect of your product. It is just as important for any organization to ask itself: if we feel that way about faces, what else might we feel that way about? Might we feel that way? about somebody's purchase history. We feel that way about their ancestry. Yeah. Thanks very much for, um, for giving us that sort of levelling perspective of evolution and, of course, bringing your David Attenborough-like uh, perspective to this topic. And we look forward to having you back on the CIO show pretty soon. Excellent. Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure. It's been a, a conversation as much fun as a conversation between two Eastern whip birds, and I'm afraid... <laughs> that we don't have quite that level of, of, of latency lift uh, interactive uh, dovetailing, if I may uh, ruin it with, with one more metaphor. But I look forward to the next conversation. Cheers. Be well, Take, sir. All, all the best. Take care. Now, AI know that has the potential to help solve some of our biggest health challenges and the technology has already been successfully applied in tackling diseases like melanoma, um, while more recently it's been touted as a key weapon in the battle against COVID-19. But just like with any other sector, health professionals are still figuring out how best to use AI. Um, Alan Pritchard is head of ICT with Austin Health, which runs the Austin Teaching Hospital in Melbourne, as well as as the Heidelberg Repatriation Hospital and the Royal Talbot Rehabilitation Centre. Alan, thanks for joining us on the CIO show. You're welcome, David. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's great to have you. Um, how would you score the health sector to date in its application of AI? Um, I think we're learning <laughs> fairly um, early in the journey would be my sense. Uh, I think lots of organisations are experimenting with projects that are AI related. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, those projects, in my experience, tend to happen outside of the hospital, really. They tend to be run by academics who um, get approval to have access to some set of health data and then go and try to figure out uh, whether they can generate some insights based on that data. Right. Um, and they're certainly not sort of scaled into any any production capacity. So they, so you're probably finding that there's there's a lot of great concepts out there, but somewhat of a gap between that concept and, and, and reality. Yeah, I think that's right. I think people have great ideas of what's possible. Mm. Uh, but my general sense is that they're not, they don't have a great idea of how to um, easily implement them and test the hypothesis, yep. uh, and which really shouldn't be that hard. Um, and then having tested the hypothesis, they don't tend to set them up in a way which makes it easy to, to turn the insights back into um, operational capability by providing them to the people who need them within the health service. Indeed. Now, um, as, as we know, unfortunately, there's been quite a, a spike in COVID cases in, in Melbourne. Um, now, um, as we know, Austin has developed a, an AI-based AI COVID care app, which is um, no doubt um, 
that you're no doubt thankful to have in place now that this spike in cases has occurred. Talk me through a little bit about how that um, app was developed and how it works. Sure. Um, so the COVID Care app is essentially a web-based tool to help members of the public decide whether or not they should come in for a screening test or not. Um, and it's, it's based on Department of Health and Human Services guidelines, so at all times it's kept up to date with uh, um, the most current set of guidelines and it really just tells people in a nice, simple, clear, easy to understand way whether or not they should attend somewhere for a screening test or whether they're fine to stay away and monitor their own now health, it, as it were. It actually listens to people's breathing over the phone, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So that's the next extension of it, is that if somebody has been advised to come in or if they've just come in off their own bat and had a screening test and they do get, um, they do have a positive swab for coronavirus, then we um, <clears throat> send people uh, a reminder every day to log in to the app and uh, fill in a little form that tells us how they're feeling, mm -hmm. if they've had any symptoms or any change in symptoms. Um, and if they've got difficulty breathing, then um, it pops up a separate field, which gives them the opportunity to um, do what's known as a ROC score test, I think, which is count to 30 and record yourself counting to 30. Sure. Um, and that recording then gets sent back to our uh, Azure tenant, um, our little AI routine runs across the top, really to look at whether there's any anomalies in the breathing pattern or if there are any um, changes prior to uh, compared to prior to days that you've recorded. Um, so that's a useful little tool. It's a nice use of AI. Yeah, um, certainly, certainly a very powerful application of AI in, 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 in treating a major health issue, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Um, we have been fortunate in Australia because we haven't seen a massive influx of cases so to be fair um, it hasn't really been called upon its primary use clinically is to help the clinicians who look at all these results just mm -hmm. to prioritize them and go have a look at this one before you have a look at all the others yeah um, uh, but fortunately the number of positive cases has been low enough that they, they can get through them all pretty quickly anyway so mm. um, but if we do get a pickup it'll undoubtedly be a great uh, adjunct to the clinicians looking at these reports every day. No, I would have thought so because one of the one of the key anxieties is about hospitals not necessarily being overrun with people with COVID, but everybody who thinks they might have it. So, yeah, incredibly powerful. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the the ones who the worried people who come in and then get sick because they've come in is an issue. And mm. uh, but more importantly, as you say, if, if the volume picks up, then it will be difficult for health services to keep on top of demand just because mm. um, uh, of a resource mismatch. And that was really the concern when all of this started off. Indeed. Now, I, I also understand that you and your team at Austin Health have been working on applying AI to the area of, a very important area of tracking and analysing patients' adverse drug reactions. Talk me through that that project. Yeah, this, deep, was probably, um, this was probably the first... Um, uh, meaningful AI implementation across the hospital. And to, and to be honest, our team wasn't really involved in it. It was the uh, clinical pharmacologists within the pharmacy department who went off and did this. 
and somewhat of their own best. Right. Um, and they've essentially developed a, uh, an algorithm which looks at the um, patient's clinical database every night um, and really looks for patterns which identify people who may have had some sort of adverse drug reaction. Um, so this is a job which normally the pharmacy department do manually. They have to try and find people who've had an adverse drug reaction and not only go and help them with their medications, but report it, um, mm. uh, report it to the uh, federal government, I think. Yes. Um, so it's a very manual um, process. Uh, the, the pharmacy team built this um, AI algorithm six or nine months ago, I think. Uh, and as a result, they found that their rate of reporting adverse drug reactions has gone up, and that's because the algorithm is giving them a, a pre-qualified list of people to go and look at. Yep. Um, it's not perfect, and again, it, it, mm. but it's a great decision support tool because they can now look at a, a pre-selected list of people who may have an adverse drug reaction and go and uh, do their investigation on that sort of pre-sorted list. So it's been a highly effective uh, development without a doubt. Sure. Now, um, I think, sorry, I was just going to say the, the, that the next phase of that is to try to bring that into a more sustainable environment, really, which um, simplifies some of the mechanics of turning that information back around into the hospital because it, it was just um, created on a VM within our environment, which is... Uh, difficult to scale and difficult to access remotely and all that sort of stuff. Sure. Um, I mean, obviously ethics ethics is a, is a big area, a big issue in in the healthcare space with enormous amounts of data, of course, and and um, you know, and people's and, and, and people's lives being quite you know directly affected. Um, talk me through some of the challenges you're facing in, in the ethics area. Um, yeah, people are right concerned about the ethics of doing AI experiments on data. Um, the health system has always had a very robust approach to ethics of any any sort of research. So no research can be done um, in health without prior approval by a human research ethics committee. Right. Um, and that includes research on data. It doesn't have to be research that involves touching patients, as it were. So any research on data needs to have approval by an ethics committee. So any um, any experimentation done or research done with our data um, does have ethics approval. Mm -hmm. uh, and that takes into consideration the purpose of the research, the likelihood of success, whether the data is identified or de-identified, whether people explicitly gave permission for their data to be used for that purpose. So right. it's, not, it's not a broad, sweeping privacy thing. It's uh, patient, People have to have given specific permission for the, the research to be done. Mm. Um, so I think from an ethics and governance point of view, the health system really has a, um, a robust approach to ethics across all of the data-related research. Sounds like you're in the process of developing a um, a template that might be um, might be applicable across other industries. Whether you'd comment on that, uh, that or not, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I'm not, I'm not going to try and roll that out, but I do think um, there's a there's a good case for having some independent body look at some of the work that's done and just make a determination on whether it's ethical or not. Indeed. Before indeed. it's done. Yeah. Well, Alan, thanks so much for joining us on the show and we look forward to having you on again sometime soon. Lovely. Thanks for your time, David. All the best. Cheers. You too. Bye. There seem to be two camps when it comes to organisations that are deploying and or contemplating AI. There are those that have figured out how to take a practical, iterative yet experimental approach and there are those that seem to be a little like rabbits in their headlights if we continue the Attenborough-esque theme of Gartner's Wood Andrews such that they're bogged in analysis paralysis be it in having too broad, even romantic a view of AI's potential or overthinking its dangers. Now, Dr Richard Nock is the group leader of machine learning at the CSIRO's Data61. Richard, welcome. Thank you very much. Now, what's your advice to Australian CIOs looking to invest in AI? The advice would consist in two parts. The first one is watch over that space because it's it's been moving fast uh, recently and it's going to be moving fast and even faster in the near future. Mm-hmm. And two, make sure you can properly invest for what is relevant to the problem you want to solve. Mm-hmm. Now, AI clearly has potential to transform many areas of business and life in Australia. What are some of the key projects that Data61 is working on at the moment? Well, Data61 is working on both the uh, the fundamental part of AI and, for example, machine learning, mm-hmm. because there is still a, a substantial part of the field which is yet to be explained and properly developed from a scientific standpoint. Right. And Data61 is also working on a larger scale uh, application projects, uh, such as, for example, on smart cities at large, mm-hmm. in healthcare and disaster prevention and disaster response, bushfire uh, analysis, for example. Yeah, it's very important in Australia, yes. Yes. Now, now the area you just mentioned is an area, a key area of, of machine learning AI that, that's yet to be explained. Can you explain it to me? Oh, well, that's a, that's a very good question. Thank you very much for asking it. The, the, so essentially, machine learning is, is progressing at two different paces. Ah. The first one is applications. We all see, I guess, everybody can see that there's a push uh, almost everywhere for the applications of AI and machine learning because it can be convenient, uh, it can solve a problem where the eventually the humans wouldn't be able to solve a problem. But there's also a need to understand the technology at the core. Machine learning was born in laboratories. Yes. Applying this technology to the outer world does not go without additional considerations to the initial models and what they can really solve. Sure. And that's why we are investigating this space as well. Huh. Well, no, I mean, that's so really what you're describing there. That goes to the core of this, this debate around ethics, really, doesn't it? It actually does because artificial intelligence is a science, the science of automated problem solving, we mm-hmm. can call it this way. Yeah. When you want to apply this science, you need to be careful about where it is going to be applied and what can be the consequences of the application. Mm-hmm. So there are definitely ethical considerations when you can see that in almost every part of society and every space Mm -hmm. in society, 
there can be, there are already, or there will be applications of AI and machine learning. Yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting, isn't it? I mean, it, it, for, for people like yourself who, who are, you know, well-versed and fluent in AI, this is, you know, you are engaged in, in very high level, yet quite practical problem solving. Yet it's, it's somewhat unfortunate that there's been, you know, some might say even an, an emotional reaction to, to some of the, um, some of the results of, of AI projects. That's correct. And you can understand that because there is indeed part of the reactions that are born out of, let's say, a more romantic view of AI mm. and the field. Mm. In a broader sense, it's history, in novels uh, in particular. And you can understand that we are all humans after all. Mm. But there needs to be a more grounded uh, approach to the uh, applications of the field. And we need at some point to somehow get rid of these romantic views of AI to get something down on the ground working properly. Sure, sure. I mean, of course, and one of the one of the things that's sort of you know, beautiful about science, of course, is that there's um, you know quite often results are very unpredictable. Or, or to think, put it another way, scientists might discover things that they had no idea that they were going to discover. And for example, we were speaking earlier with with Gartner's uh, with Andrews that Facebook reported recently that its chatbots had um, started developing their own language and we're, and we're talking together. Now, for people like you, that's kind of probably cool. Um, but for a lot of other people, they sort of evoked, predictably evoked some of those more um, you know, uh, heightened fears around computers becoming sentient and, and overtaking us. What, do you, what were your thoughts about that when you, you learned about those Facebook chatbots that had developed their own language? So that's actually a very good example because in this example, there is both the scientific and the romantic view at play. Yes, indeed. Uh, There is the scientific view, uh, which uh, essentially means that the machine indeed developed its own models to actually understand the the, the social network. Mm. Let's just say it this way. But there is also the romantic view, the humans interpreting this as somehow a new language and then extrapolating this to AI being the science of maybe automation of the human decision process. Yes. And then going further to what about the, the machine? Is it developing its subconscious maybe yes. out of all of this? Yeah. I think we need to stop at some point and it's probably reasonable to stop somewhere around the model itself and yeah. not to go too far. Yeah. Indeed. Data61 recently developed the, the AI ethics uh, principles. Yes. There's, there's eight of them. Um, yes. They came out last year, didn't they? Wasn't it the year before? Uh, it was last year, yes. Was I believe it was, yeah. yeah. This, this, year, this year seems to have gone so long. It seems like years ago. Um, so, uh, Richard, talk us through what essence of those ethics, those AI ethics principles that the Data61 has developed. So, essentially, you have a set of principles uh, not all of them are relevant to uh, all applications, mm. but these are rather some principles that you can cherry pick for the kind of applications you want to carry out. Mm. For example, if you want to install a system that's going to take decisions impacting a lot of people, the guarantees you want to have are going to be different as if you wanted to implement the same system to predict the yield of a crop for a particular farmer. For that's example. a very good point. Interesting, yeah. In the, in the first case, you need to make sure that the decisions are fair, for mm. example. Mm. You need to make sure that they can be explained. And you need also to make sure that 
the people's data that are going to be used in the system is going to remain private. Indeed. There's, there's been some criticism of the the fact that the the ethics principles that you've developed are, are not are not binding and I'm aware that there are certain sort of ethical frameworks in the US and Europe that are binding, some that are not. Um, but what I mean, what would you, your advice be, Richard, to, to CIOs that are, you know, looking to develop um, AI projects, particularly ones that, that have um, more direct impact on, on actual human beings and how they might use, use the, um, you know, make, make good use of those ethics principles? Well, I think that in all cases, uh, both the, let's say, the Australian where we are currently and the European and others as well, uh, all what you can observe has been, the, it all has been a, a result of different steps being carried out. These ethical principles that we have in Australia, it's good to think of them as maybe an intermediary step mm. for maybe a broader sense of AI and its use in society at the scale of Australia. But for CIOs, I think what's very interesting in these principles is to use them as maybe a tool to have, let's say, better use of machine learning and artificial intelligence, given that these principles are very useful to actually have people understand and buy the technology. If you can guarantee that your system is going to be accurate, that's one thing. Mm -hmm. If you can also guarantee that it's going to be fair, that's a whole different thing. Yes. And if you can guarantee, in addition, that the people's data are going to be kept in the system and nobody is going to be able to see them, the privacy is going to be granted, that that's also a third level uh, with which people can be very happy. Sure. I mean, obviously, obviously a, lot, um, a lot more peace of mind if, uh, for organizations developing AI if they have some sort of guidelines um, for doing so on, 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 in terms of ethics. Richard, thanks so much for your time. It's very interesting and we look forward to having you back on the, the CIO show soon. Thank you very much. Certainly one of the most important and ambitious AI projects ever undertaken in Australia, if not the world, was the creation of Nadia, the AI-powered avatar designed to help people better navigate the National Disability Insurance Scheme, the NDIS. Voiced by actor Kate Blanchett, Nadia was touted as a world first, being capable of conversing with people across the entire spectrum of impairment. What's more, it was actually developed by people with disabilities and earned praise the world over. Yet it appears Nadia has gone missing. She's been shelved. Why? Well, it's hard to know. Suffice to say, Nadia conjured a perfect storm of challenges that are emerging across the evolving AI space. Marie Johnson, Managing Director and Chief Digital Officer with the Centre for Digital Business, is one of the foremost experts on AI, having worked across the private and public sectors in Australia, US and elsewhere in this area. She is also Nadia's mother. Mari, thanks for joining us on the CIO Show. David, thank you so much for the opportunity to have this conversation. So tell me, what went so wrong with Nadia? Well, as your introdu introduction uh, stated, it was a perfect storm. And it was the perfect storm that actually made it all possible. But it was also uh, a perfect storm that was ahead of its time mm -hmm. and in many ways um, made a lot of people um, uncomfortable because we were so far ahead of the thinking yes. that was being done at the time. Yes. And really when it started was about five years ago. And so what talk me through the, the, the process of, of, of getting this, this project up and running because as, as you say, um, you know, this was a, a, very, a very unique um, project and a very important project. So talk me through sort of 
you know, the genesis of the, genesis of the idea and then sort of how it came to be. And, and then, of course, you know, I'm sure our audience would be um, keen to know your views on, um, on, on why, why Nadi has been shelved. You know, there's some amazing dimensions to this project. And whilst, you know, a lot of people might say, you know, either it's been shelved or, um, you know, there were things that went wrong. Um, actually, Nadia project itself um, was so successful mm-hmm. that it really um, generated a global industry in these type of conversational interfaces. Yes. But where we started was in a human rights um, dimension. Mm-hmm. And if you could imagine most government services, um, digital services, and even health services, private sector services, um, are very bureaucratic much of the time. And in government, this is particularly so. You know, trying to navigate around any government website, um, the structure's impossible to navigate. The terminology is complex and bureaucratic. Um, And then the same problem exists in call centres. And so the challenge that we had was going back to the human rights and to the rights of persons with disability to be able to access information and services Mm. on an equal basis. Yes. Uh, It seemed to us that that the whole design paradigm needed to be revisited Mm. from a human rights perspective. So that's where we started. Sure. Well, it's interesting you say that it had its its beginnings in, in effectively human rights for various reasons, you know, Nadia has been paused. Perhaps that's a nicer way of nicer way than saying she's been <laughs> shelved. But but as you've indicated previously, and just now, that technology has spawned a global industry. I, I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit on on how the sort of the technology that has been used to create Nadia has has is now being used in the um, in the private sector. I think I, I noticed some time ago uh, a reference to it in the in the automotive industry. Am I right in saying that? Uh, that's correct. Yeah. Um, there literally have been hundreds of articles, of references to Nadia. I've tried to keep track of them all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, written in all languages um, around the world. You'd be surprised at where it's um, been spoken about. And I believe that is because, you know, we really got to a core of understanding how people want to communicate simply. Mm. And, um, and this was really one of the key design principles that we had. Mm-hmm. And having um, the team with people with disability who were front and centre of this whole um, design um, exercise mm-hmm. uh, really, really pulled back um, all the complexity that usually is around, you know, service design. Yes. And so, so this sort of um, concept, how, how do... Um, in the digital age, um, we communicate uh, with, with, with people, really has to step outside the enterprise into the domain of the, um, the citizen or um, the patient, if it's in healthcare, mm-hmm. the consumer, if it's in you know, commercial space, and really get inside what that human experience is about. Yep. And, with, and with Nadia, very, very... Simply, and this is not a pejorative statement, it was the essence of it, was understanding what um, people wanted and um, what people with disabilities said to us, quite simply, they wanted a face and a simple 
in a simple conversation. Yes. And so we uh, designed um, a whole dialogue model uh, around this and concepts that have now been applied elsewhere. Mm. So, so the design exercise went ahead of the technology, but then it embraced um, the technology to really push the realms of not only what was possible at the time, and as I said, we started out five years ago, mm. but where all this was going. Yes. And, and of course, it, it really was user-driven, wasn't it? I mean, people with disabilities who would be using the NDIS were actually um, recruited to, you know, in, in its actual design. Correct. Um, and this is the essence of co-design. And there's a principle uh, in human rights, and we applied this front and centre to the design exercise. Um, and the principle is nothing about me without me. Mm-hmm. And that is not about having, you know, a website or an app or something like that developed and then getting people with disability to try it out, provide their feedback. It was actually really going back to first principles yeah. and saying what was what was needed. Yes. So, um, so having the, um, uh, the co-design exercise um, and... So I might also just add that co-design is not a one-off activity. Mm-hmm. Um, it is an ongoing. It's iterative, activity. isn't it? Yeah. And because, and the reason why this is important to emphasise um, for people listening is that Nadia was a learning system. Yes. And the learning of the system and the interaction with the people yep. would would be ongoing, and so the feedback would need to happen continually so that the learning system continues to to update so very much co-design was you know front and front and center of this i think that's a wonderful point you know the fact that uh, it seems you know it seems with a lot of ai projects that aren't getting off the ground that aren't successful one of the reasons seems to be this sort of uh, lack of understanding around um, what ai is and that ai isn't something that you can encapsulate um and, and, and cluster in the same way that you might other sorts of projects or other sorts of IT projects. It very much is a learning process. And, and I understand that, you know, that's really, that was, that was the, the understanding that Nadia needed and, and didn't really get. That's right. Um, we had uh, put together um, a, an operating model, which was um, obviously the front and centre being people with disability. So it wasn't, in our definition, an IT project. It was a human experience project. Mm -hmm. And with that involved um, very significantly the role of psychologists um, and obviously designers. And technology clearly was part of that. But I think one of the problems we see um, still today, Mm -hmm. and this will be a big issue with um, AI projects and initiatives, Yes. Uh, is that it will be seen, continue to be seen as like, you know, an IT project. Yes. Um, and for commercial organisations, um, what these type of systems do, particularly these embodied uh, conversational systems, particularly mm. um, systems that are embodied with, with a face, yeah. it starts to represent their brand. And if there hasn't been consideration given to the personality of what this digital human might be, yes. then that has implications for um, a brand in the commercial sense. Yeah. And so we um, invested quite a lot of effort in designing Nadia's personality mm. um, to be appropriate for the role in which it was being designed 
Um, and in commercial sense, you might think about that as being almost a, um, a central to a, an organisation's brand. So that's that's why it, it really can't be in, you know, just be considered to be an IT project, particularly where it's customer or person interfacing. Mm, extraordinarily powerful, um, if done right, no doubt. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Um, some of the feedback um, that has been written about Nadia includes, and this is um, in the United Kingdom as well, mm. that um, a model such as Nadia uh, helps with um, access to um, legal services, for example, where mm. there's a lot of complexity around understanding the law and a lot of people who are accessing legal services who are vulnerable people or who are people who don't have the financial means you know, to retain their own advisors yeah. um, are really at a disadvantage. And so these types of systems, particularly when there's co-design and when the dialogue is co-designed, mm-hmm. are very powerful in helping to overcome some of these really structural institutional barriers to people accessing services. And um, uh, the legal field is one. Um, health is another. And Nadia was sort of almost in between those two categories, if you like. Um, What are people eligible for? And that concept of eligibility was, and still is, for people very difficult to understand. Mm. So, you know, there's an element of justice that really underpins all of this. Sure. Now, it's it's about... It's about two years since Nadia went missing, is that right? <laughs> um, it was introduced mm-hmm. formally uh, in March 2017 uh-huh. by, the, by the NDIA um, okay. uh, officially. So it's been a bit longer. Um, but, <laughs> but, but a few, a few months later, um, yes, um, was, was put on hold, as it were. Now, what do, you think it's, what do you think it's going to take to bring her back, do you think? I think it will come back because mm. the... From my um, perspective, the success in it is what's happened as a result of it and the take-up of these type of, you know, systems uh, elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, Australia uh, is traditionally a very risk-averse country in terms of, of innovation. What pushed this so early was innovation in areas that perhaps were not even considered, such as you know, by people with disabilities. So I think we got it very early mm. um, and with part of the community that was really, really driving this. So I think that really pushed um, the envelope both in terms of what was done mm. and in terms of the um, speed with which it was done. So I think given what's happen, happening around the world, uh, it will come back. Um, you know, the bureaucracy will say, well, okay, now this is, you know, being taken up elsewhere around the world. Uh, we will now, you know, bring it bring it back as it were. Um, but if it's not the bureaucracy, you know, I would hope some benefactor, <laughs> you mm, know, mm. Um, would, would also pick it up. But the, the business case behind it, beyond the human rights, which in itself stands alone, yes. um, but the business case be, behind it, because I did it, is yes. incredibly powerful for efficiencies, and for the intelligence and the insight mm. that you get operationally. And yes. I think that is still, for the NDIS, um, a big missing factor um, in their operations. Well, Mar- well Murray, um, I wish you and Nadia all the best <laughs> and um, let's hope to, see, hope to see Nadia back soon and we, and we look forward to welcoming you, welcoming you back on the CIO show soon as well. All the best. Thank you. 
Thank you very much, David, and I look forward to returning with Nadia and perhaps a few more of her friends. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to the second of our two-part episode on AI in Australia. We hope you've enjoyed it and find it useful as you go forth into this fascinating and important area of IT. In our next episode, we'll be talking to leading CIOs in the retail, travel and healthcare sectors about their experiences in responding to COVID-19. Of course, we're all familiar with the various operational challenges presented by the pandemic, but the ongoing cultural transformations in the workforce are forcing CIOs to think and plan in different ways. While interestingly, many are enjoying the fact IT projects are being expanded and accelerated. We hope you can join us.